0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Vidi. I'm one of the co-hosts of this channel. Today we're talking with Tim Murtaugh, a graduate of Trinity College Dublin, who completed his PhD there in 2015. His research focuses on the history of Ireland in the 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, and particularly the political activities of its urban workers. Tim was a historical consultant on the Dublin Tenement Museum at number 14 Henrietta Street and a book based on his research there will be appearing later next year. Since April of 2020, Dr. Murtaugh has been an Archival Research Fellow with the Beyond 22 Project, an international research project working to create a virtual reconstruction of the Public Records Office in Ireland, which was famously or infamously destroyed in the opening engagement of the Irish Civil War in 1922. He has recently published a book with Liverpool University Press, which is based on his doctoral dissertation, and is entitled Irish Artisans and Radical Politics, 1770 to 1820, which will be the central focus of what we talk about today. Tim, welcome. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks very much, Aidan. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: Maybe if I could start with a a very basic question. Who were the urban working classes in late 18th century Ireland?
1: Uh, Well, I suppose the most basic point is that they are a minority. Urban workers count for only about seven percent of the inhabitants of Ireland at about mid mid eighteenth century. Uh, only about seven percent of people in sort of 1750 were living in towns of ten thousand inhabitants or more. That's actually quite small compared to say English or Scottish urbanisation rates, which are a bit more than double actually. Uh, nonetheless, that's sort of obscuring a few things. It's only 7% of the population, but it's a population that's rapidly growing. Population doubles between 1750 and 1800. Um, Most urban workers would be living in a port city. Eight out of the ten largest towns or cities in in Ireland were ports. I mean, inland cities like Kilkenny, relative rarity. Most urban workers would have been part of the guild system, which had sort of purchase in most of the major cities, Dublin, Cork, Drada, Limerick, uh, etc. Uh, and so by being part of the guild system, most urban workers were thus artisanals. Uh, artisans or artisanal manufacturing obviously being a system inherited from the medieval guild set up in which you have a master with two or three journeymen and maybe a couple of apprentices, small scale, pre-industrial, uh, etc. Uh, most would have been working in some of the major fields. I mean, obviously, textiles is sort of the big one, the big story in the 18th century silk and wool in dublin and cork linen in sort of east ulster uh, in southern cities like waterford cork limerick uh, agricultural uh, processing like food processing provisions would have been another big sector uh, so that's sort of what they're doing um, in terms of who they are in terms of where they're coming from uh, a considerable amount are from the city they're born in although there's great Growth of the cities. Uh, this isn't like sort of 19th century London, where you know, you know, literally it's a, a net death rate. When you actually have to replenish the population. Uh, nonetheless, most of the major cities had fairly large hinterlands. Where they're, they're drawing migrants from. Uh, I'm trying to think, sort of, well how else to describe in a sort of Broadway 18th century workers um, language would be another really interesting one to look at. Um, I mean, most, I mean, this is a broad generalization, but most urban workers would have been Anglophone, not exclusively, but if you look at some of the major uh, sort of conurbations, it's a largely Anglophone culture with some notable exceptions. So uh, for instance, in Dublin, although the the assumption is, you know, it's the capital city, it's exclusively Anglophone, that's very much the sort of the official culture, uh, you still have a minority, if unquantifiable, uh, of Irish speakers. You have evidence certainly of an elite Irish culture, I- a Gael- Gaelgore culture in the city. Um, in the earlier part of the century, you have the Onyachton Circle, sort of Sean and Tiger Onyachtan in the 1720s. Uh, at the level of usage. I mean, you have some little hints that there is a substantial Irish-speaking population in Dublin uh, as late as 1761. We've got evidence of a Dominican chapel in Bridge Street in, in the city, where you've got a mass and a sermon being said in Irish at 7 a.m. every day. That's actually quite sh- surprising. I mean, I actually sort of found that quite, not shocking, but definitely surprising. Nonetheless, this would have been relative minority within Dublin, but if you look further south, if you look to Cork, you're getting uh, definitely a non-Anglophone dominant sort of public sphere. Uh, Nicholas Wolfe, who sort of looked at this in his great book, An Irish-Speaking Island, estimates it's about 40 to 50% of Cork City inhabitants in the 18th century are at least conversant in Irish. And that sort of chimes with impressions you get from visitors' accounts, which sort of say Irish is very much a lived language in there as late as you know, the 1810s, 1820s. It's it's you know, common to hear it in the streets. Obviously, that doesn't hold when you look further north in the country. If you go to Ulster while there is certainly uh, an Ulster-Scots slant to certain East Ulster cities, definitely Belfast, Lisburn, Carcfergus, uh, it's it's largely Anglophone. So, I mean, there are, there are discrepancies here, and there's no sort of broad generalisation in terms of linguistics, but that would be how I would describe it. Uh, obviously, <laughs> the most obvious thing, sorry, I, I, you, you can cut me off, Aidan, if, if I'm rambling, but <laughs> the most obvious one I'm supposed to leave you out is just religion, you know, who were... Uh, um, uh, Urban workers in eighteenth-century Ireland. Well, again, there's differences between north and south. In the seventeenth century, as sort of part of a program of sort of colonization, uh, the cities had been envisioned as sort of bastions of Protestantism, and that sort of idea sort of lingered on to the early eighteenth century. But that was rapidly changing. Sort of by the 1730s, there's a Catholic majority in Cork, Limerick, Waterford. Uh, Dublin is about 50% Catholic by mid-century. It's probably a Protestant. It's, it's Dublin's probably a Catholic majority city by the end of the century. Uh, looking further north to Belfast, uh, it's not an Anglican city; it's a Presbyterian city, overwhelmingly so, with a very small Catholic mon- minority. I mean, Catholic Catholic percentage of B- Belfast's population was only about six or seven percent in this period. I mean, it grows rapidly in the nineteenth century, as sort of is very well documented. I mean, by by the eighteen thirties, Catholics are about a third of Belfast, but that's very much the future. In the eighteenth century, it's 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 a fraction
0: of that so, so you mentioned nicholas wolf there and i might kind of draw on him a little bit for another question one of, one of the things i really love about his book um is that he really forces us to recognize that that seeing things just in terms of this very stark like gaelic culture or anglophone binary really misses out on a lot and that, that there is all this fuzziness in between of people who can speak irish but choose to speak english or vice versa and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, about the kind of categories that we use to talk about the urban working class in this period. Um, what's the kind of fuzziness between them and the middle class? How, how much are they interacting with the middle class? Are they kind of hermetically sealed off from them? Or are they influencing them? Or are they influenced by them?
1: That's a good point. I mean, uh, I mean, concepts of class, as we would know it, are obviously very different in the 18th century than what becomes from a mature industrial society. There's... Infinite amounts of uh, sort of gradations. You know what's the difference between a sort of a wealthy tailor who's now got you know a factory force of ten men, but he started out as a journeyman, versus someone who's technically a shopkeeper or a clerk but is earning less. You know you you can find all these examples. Uh, There's definitely a sense that the the class divisions are becoming hardened. I would argue by the end of the century, Uh, class again in a very loose term. But you see this even just in terms of uh, residential settings. In The early part of the 18th century, there's much more residential mixing in places like Cork and Dublin, between sort of more prosperous artisans and the sort of middle clerical or you know professional classes. Uh, you know, Dublin, notoriously what we think of as 18th century Dublin in the popular imagination, this sort of neoclassical city, also sort of occurs against the backdrop of residential and social segregation, uh, sort of the prosperous leave sort of the older, the old city, the old medieval core, uh, places like Smithfield, places like uh, sort of, you know, the parish of St. Audens or St. Catharines and move to sort of the new fashionable squares of Marion Square, Fitzwilliam Square, Gardner Square, Gardner Place. that's sort of, there's an abandonment of, of that and sort of you definitely see a worsening of working class housing stock and a segregation. So it's fuzzy, it's certainly not as class uh, sort of calcified as it becomes in the 19th century, but it, you're seeing that sort of future development sort of in the, in the final decades is how I would describe it.
0: I, I wonder if, it, as you wrote all this, is it very difficult to not think about what's gonna come in 1798 uh, as a kind of a, you know, always have that kind of hanging over you?
1: I mean, I really do. I mean, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a real problem, and it's not necessarily unique, obviously, to, to historians of Ireland in, in the 18th century. I mean, without being too grandiose in a comparison, historians of the French Revolution, who then, you know, later on in their career write a history of 18th century France, find this very hard. How do you not write theologically, where you're sort of seeing it in reverse? Um, I think you have to, I mean, if I am guilty a little bit, is probably unseen tensions sort of brewing. It's hard not to see them simply because you're confronted with the end of the 18th century. This phenomenal rebellion, you know, maybe as many as 20,000 people dead. Um, sort of this, uh, you know, conservative, loyalist hegemony you know, essentially crumble or you know almost collapse and simply you have the comparison of that not happening in England um, and you know for better or for worse so much of irish historiography is embedded in an english historical, historical writing tradition this is this one example one of several examples where you, know, you have a real contrast in the fates uh, of sort of the elites at the end of the 18th century it's hard not to sort of go back into those earlier decades and see where's it where's it going different what what are the fundamental differences that are going to lead to this divergence of experience
0: and then just i mean obviously Politically, there are ways in which artisans are playing a role in what's coming in the 1790s. Are they playing a role intellectually? Are they kind of learning from people like Wolf Tone?
1: Absolutely. Um, It's hard to reconstruct the mental world of these artisans simply because the sources are so much more scarce. Um, I mean, someone like Tone is a great example because he leaves this incredibly amiable, revealing diary, which sort of generations of not just nationalists, but historians and people are written anyone interested in the period have sort of poured over getting to the sort of the mindset of an artisan is much more challenging sort of you only really get their testimony in in informers reports sometimes in court cases very 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 rarely in any sort of reminiscence that you know sort of gets put down in print um but There is lots of evidence from sort of the authorities monitoring them that, yes, the artisans had very much an independent intellectual culture. Uh, One of the things I sort of make a lot of uh, sort of a big deal of in the book in, in one particular chapter about Dublin artisans is that there's all these reports, very verifiable reports of artisan debate clubs in the early 1790s. And they're happening at the exact same time as the United Irishmen are sort of just getting going. And it's at a time where the United Irishmen, certainly in Dublin, have no interest in getting an artisan following. They're not recruiting. They're an elite debate club of sort of, you know, the wannabe politicians, the lawyers, the barristers. While they're all, you know, away in Taylor's Hall debating all these things, there are these completely separate, independent plebeian debate clubs going on, which are reading pain. They're reading stuff coming out of France. They're reading the host of sort of imitators of pain over in England. and. I think it would be incredibly naive to assume that that independent world of artisan clubs is coming to the exact same conclusions as the more bourgeois sort of equivalents down the road in the United Irishman. I, I, I see that as very unlikely. And there is a little bit of evidence that, you know, someone like Wolf Tone and some, you know, sort of tailor in a debate club in Thomas street, maybe reading Thomas Paine, the rights of man, they're coming to some very different conclusions about what that would mean in terms of economic policy.
0: So. So, I mean, maybe just to kind of jump even further forward to the other big event that kind of always hangs over Irish history and to the 1910s and the 1920s. Um, as, as we've gone through this good or bad thing called the Decade of Commemorations, one thing that seems quite obvious to me that has happened is, is people have made a big effort to say, well, we need to bring women into the narrative and, and we need to recognize the role that women played and you can end up with a very different image of something like 1916 or the War of Independence if you recognize the role the women play. What does 1798 look like if we recognize the role that artisans are playing and actually recognize their agency within all this?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, just one thing I'd say without getting too off topic. Uh the current decade of centenaries we had a decade of bicentenaries back in the 1990s that culminated in the 1798 bicentenary 1998 and it killed off studies of the event for about a decade plus i know the current batch of irish revolution scholars think the party will be unending and there will be an endless appetite for forever of new books on collins and what have you i would warn them that there might be some nasty surprises coming but Maybe not. That's an aside. Now, how does it how, how does it sort of artisans? How does it complicate traditional narratives of ninety eight rebellion? I mean, for my money, by refocusing on urban workers, one of the things you do is you start to look at the idea of contingency. Okay, seventeen ninety eight is mainly something that happens in rural settings. Dominantly South Leinster, Wexford obviously being sort of the epicenter, and a lot of debates about what is 98, how do we describe it, have sort of focused, being Wexford focused largely, and for, for very good reasons, I'm not arguing that, but sort of you get into these sort of uh, historiographical slagging matches almost, or is it a failed revolution, or is it a sectarian civil war, is it a peasant uprising, and those are all valid discussions. But if you refocus it on cities one of the things that kind of uh, gets out that sort of comes out of that discussion is a renewed interest on how elite using that term broadly elite ideas ideas from middle class radicals are transformed or mutated when they get a popular following when you look at that in the rural context in wexford and again i'm saying that is important but when you look at it in the wexford context it does sort of devolve into these ultimately a question about sectarianism or not Whereas when you refocus it on the cities, you get some more interesting sort of things, like uh, we know, for instance, several of the leading United Irishmen who were big employers were firm anti-trade unionists. They had confrontations with their workers. They have an idea of Irish independence, which will give political rights to, to, uh, to, to artisans. They'll have the vote, but they will not be allowed to organize as they have. they'll still be anti-combination legislation, anti-trade union legislation. Obviously, the artisans don't feel that way at all. They feel sort of economic freedom and liberty comes part and parcel with political rights. We never get to see that Conflict play out. I mean, there's a wonderful hypothetical. I think you could you could put imagine if 1798 had worked. Imagine if the United Irishmen had actually captured Dublin in tw- on the 23rd of May. Uh, would we have then seen a replay of say the French Revolution? Would sort of there been an 18th century revolutionary Dublin in the same va- vein as revolutionary Paris? Would you know areas like Thomas Street and the Coombe have become sort of equivalents to the sort of Faubourg Saint Antoine or Saint Marcel, sort of a new Saint Culo, sort of challenging? Saint-Clos sort of challenging sort of bourgeois dominance, we don't know. That's a hypothetical, and sort of counterfactuals like that can be a little bit dangerous. Uh, but I think it re, by refocusing on urban workers, it sort of rebrings in the idea of the interaction between economic influences and intellectual life. And one of the problems with 1798 studies is that people. Earlier historians who applied economic models to why 98 broke out where it did sometimes have a tendency to sort of devolve into economic determinism. Uh, I think there's a more nuanced sort of argument to be had. Why do economic influences make certain groups more receptive to certain arguments? How do those economic pressures perhaps lead to certain arguments or ideas mutating uh, amongst certain constituencies? I think that's one of the real interesting areas that it uh, it, it could enlighten.
0: One of the thing that sort of percolates throughout your book, which I I have to admit, I, I really kind of lasered in on because it's just it's related to my own interest, is masculinity and how there there are certain kinds of masculine identities you can see among the people you study. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a I mean, what I found in terms of masculine identity amongst Irish artisans, mainly I mean, largely confirmed what you've seen amongst studies of sort of artisans in Britain and in America at the same time. I'm thinking here of the work of someone like Anna Clark, The Struggle for the Breaches. Um, the idea that men in the 18th century, particularly artisans, have this identification of their skill and their status as artisans as being very in- intensely tied up with ideas, of obviously masculinity, being a man, uh, being a bread earner, a sort of head of a household, but also a political identity. Um, many of these, most of these artisans do not have The vote, they do not have the franchise. But by being productive members of a community, by having a skill, they are still part of a community and have a sense of citizenship, even if it's not an enfranchised one. And we have to remember that in this period, citizenship, for better or for worse, is very much a masculine construction. Again, this goes into different debates that are you know, sort of ongoing about the domestic sphere versus the public sphere and gendering of those two different spheres. But I think sort of you know, pre-1800, there definitely is a sense that sort of to be a full citizen is to be independent. Again, another part of artisan identity, not having a master. Artisans look down on people engaged in domestic service because unlike a journeyman who can sort of switch masters, they're sort of they're beholden Um the sense of citizenship is definitely masculine. It's the sense that sort of you are out in public, you are not confined to the domestic sphere, you have a voice in public affairs, even if it's not a a full vote. Uh, And there's also this other aspect of sort of artisan culture, particularly journeyman culture. There is this romantic idea of what the guild system offers, which is that, yes, you're an apprentice, you're an apprentice for usually seven years, you live with your master, it's sort of a, a, you know, a stewardship of, of your labor, but then you become a journeyman and you can, those are your, your years where you sow your wild oats, you know, you can go out and drink and sing body songs and have sex with loads of people and then you become a master and then you get married and settle down. Now that ideal progression is a mirage, it's disappearing. Uh, there's increasingly a permanent journeyman class who are never going to become master and you know, they're, of course they're cohabitating and getting married. You don't have to wait to be a master to get married, most people don't. But there is still this sort of bachelor ethos of the journeyman lifestyle, which can tend to misogyny because it's got this sort of ribald quality. And that's coupled with the economic pressure of employers are increasingly going outside the guild system. They're employing people who haven't served apprenticeships, and that includes women. And they're using female labor, which they're underpaying, it's cheap female labor, to undercut journeyman wages. They're often most notably using female labor and child labor as a, uh, when they're introducing new technological innovations, uh, labor-saving devices, which again are sort of putting a squeeze on artisanal incomes. So there's an economic logic to why some of these men resent women and why they're now increasingly identifying skill and not being a sweated uh, worker with masculinity and the artisanal lifestyle. I think that's the best way i can put it.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean it's it's sort of fascinating but also perhaps for you is quite frustrating to think that they're clearly looking out to the atlantic and and know what's going on politically and intellectually and yet trying to actually quantify that and, and have like definite evidence of that is probably always slightly elusive.
1: Very much so. I mean it, it's it's a sort of a red letter day when i can actually find Uh, On artisans' own words in the archives, I mean, it's, you know, know, there's that quote from some sociologist sort of, you know, peasants don't write, they're written about. You you can sort of say say something similar for artisans. You often get evidence of their political activities, their clubs from other people Uh, in court cases, police reports, but most notably, and this is probably most problematically, in informers' reports. One of the things I'm really aware of is that my best source for the, associ- the associational and political life of these people I'm studying are informers who are people who are shopping out their friends and acquaintances for money. They're sort of the definition of an unreliable narrator. Yet yeah, they're our best angle in. You've got to take their evidence with a pinch of salt, but sort of that's what you're working with. So I'm very aware of the limitations of what I can do. The only thing I would say to that is artisans, particularly urban work, are artisans in the bigger cities like Dublin, do provide you one thing, which is they did interact in the printed word with the authorities. They petition parliaments, they petition guilds, they petitioned municipal corporations for their rights to complain about the masters. They write articles or they commission articles to be read written about their grievances to newspapers. Now, these are formal documents, so they're not sort of going to be... Wolf Tone's diary, or you know, letters between you know William Drennan, or sort of that stuff stuff you get from middle class radicals, but not unless you're getting some of their worldview, albeit through this filter.
0: So maybe as we as we kind of tie up this conversation, if we could move a little bit from from class and gender into race. Uh, at the later parts of your book, you talk about how a fear of, of radical Irish artisans becomes a theme in British politics into the early 19th century. Um, I mean, in, like obviously in the post '98 period, and I would have assumed that this was just to do with a kind of a paranoia that comes out of anti-Irish racism, but you seem to have a different answer. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, okay. First of all, I'm not uh, I'm not writing off that idea that there is sort of anti-Irish racism and paranoia. Um, sort of that sort of prototypical Paddy. Image which becomes so you know, sort of uh, pervasive in the mid uh, Victorian decades, uh, you know, it, it's an embryo and it's there, it's forming. It's, it's, um, but yeah, you know, I, I know it's a cliche, but you know that the old saying, just because you're paranoid, doesn't mean they're not allowed to get you. Um, there is a basis for sort of British paranoia about sort of uh, Paddy coming and bringing the seeds of revolution. There is a massive exodus. Um, this is sometimes underappreciated. Again, the focus has often been on Where do sort of the leaders of 1798 go? They exile themselves predominantly to America, some to France. Um, You know, if you're part of the rank and file, you don't have that option. You hop a boat. And a lot of them, there's very good reason to get out of Ireland or to certainly get out of their home city. Uh, There's a white terror. There's a retaliation for what happened in 98 and then with Emmett in 1803. It's a good, if you think the authorities know who you are, if you're well known to the cops as a radical artisan, you know, get out of Dodge. Where's the easiest place to go to do that? Well, where there's employment, where you can get a sloop over to Chester, to Liverpool, Manchester, Paisley, go through Port Patrick. And there is a a, a huge flood of Irish labour and Irish skilled labour particularly going to the new industrial cities of Scotland, Lancashire, and also the sort of uh, manufacturing base of early 19th century London. Some of this, again, is not... I mean, it's hard to disentangle what's sort of politically motivated emigration and what is simply just economic motivated. I mean, for instance, in Glasgow and Paisley, the same years around the rebellion are also years where employers are experimenting with power loom weaving of cotton and actually have a sort of a labor deficit and are finding particularly uh, East Ulster spinners and weavers as very attractive uh, employees. So... Certain things are happening at the same time, so not every rebel is, is not not every emigrant is a rebel. There's a lot of people just migrating for, for economic purposes, but I mean, they're all agreed that there is a good hardcore of Irish radical sort of provocateurs. To use a better, to, to use an imperfect word, in places like Stockport, Manchester, Liverpool. Uh, in sort of the East End parishes of London. And you you see this, I mean, uh, again, there's a, a recent book out on the Cato Street Conspiracy of 1820 by a guy called Vic Gatrell, which really traces sort of with forensic detail, some of the old United Irish haunts from sort of pre 1798, where United Irishmen had been sort of mingling with English radicals sort of before the rebellion in London, and sort of how some of those circles still sort of persevere into the 1810s and 20s. Um, but you see evidence of Irish agitation in the great sort of post 1815 agitations like the Spafields demonstrations in 1816. There's definitely a strong Irish contingent in Peterloo in 1819. Uh, Cato Street, I've already mentioned. uh, Arthur Thistlewood, the planner of that conspiracy, uh, is definitely eager for Irish support, which he seems to think he'll get from certain parishes like Lambeth and Moorfield in London. So it's not entirely a figment or a a racist presumption by British authorities. There really is a strong Irish contingent in sort of the radical underworld of Regency Britain.
0: So as I think what you're talking about here really shows, I mean, this is a book very much grounded in in really rich archival history and grounded in the pre 1798 period in Ireland. And yet it's it's clearly also looking out both methodologically and and kind of temporally and geographically to the broader world um irish Artisans and radical politics is published now by liverpool university press as i think what tim has been talking about has shown it's a really wonderful and rich book and deserves to be read thanks so much for joining us
1: thank you so much aiden i really appreciate it Um, thanks for having me on